Let me start with a rhetorical question. Why are you here today? So if I could hear inside everybody's mind, that'd be really neat right now, I think. But my point is, hopefully, the primary reason you are here is to worship your Lord and Savior. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed, and I get the chance we were talking before uh, service started with other people, and I'm very fortunate to, li- to work in an environment, in an office where I can openly talk about my Christian faith because I have other Christians that work in that office, and it's such a blessing. And yes, we do have some disagreements and some arguments every once in a while, not heated, uh, but it's refreshing to know that you're not going to be persecuted by someone waiting to jump on you because you're a Christian, and it makes you appreciate so much more. But in some of these discussions and in previous encounters throughout the last 10 or 15 years, I sometimes think that Christians, they've told me they're, they're looking for a church. They're looking for a church that's going to feed them. Now, what precisely does that mean? Hopefully, what it means is they're looking for a Bible-teaching church, that a church that teaches from God's Word and is faithful to God's Word and upholds the standards of God's principles. But I notice in some of those conversations that that statement is made almost with a sense of entitlement. And and as I dig a little deeper, uh, it, it seems like those people think they can just come to church and receive a spiritual IV and turn around and walk out the door and all's good. Some even blame the pastor. I actually heard a Christian woman one time many years ago put her finger in the pastor's face and say, you're not feeding me and it's your job to feed me. Wow. (laughs) Um, One thing I want everybody to remember is it's the shepherd's job to lead you to the pastor, the pasture, right? To lead you to the grass and the water, to the resting place. It's not his job to take you by the back of the neck and shove your nose into the food or the water. That's your job. That's what you have to do. That's how you develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. So, I want you to think of this morning and every Sunday morning after this as your appetizer. Okay? And I want you to go and make a commitment. We're com- you know, hey, before New Year's Eve even starts, let's make a commitment to spend more time in the Bible. Let's, let's be as Bereans and searching what has our pastor taught us? What has he led us to? What does it hold for me? What does God want me to know? I stand up here and say this because God spoke to me when the pastor said, I'd like you to teach. And my first reaction was, sure, I'd love to teach. And then I realized I had slipped out of that habit of taking what he has shown me and searching further in the word. Just, you know, the basic things in life that draw us down, drag us away. So I'm challenging myself, I'm challenging you, and pray that because of that, you'll be blessed. Uh, Today, as you notice, we were very close to the end of Judges. And sometime after the new year, the pastor said he's going to start the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is um, just... If you, if you haven't read it from front to back, 
I encourage you to do that this week. It's not long. It's only four chapters. It is filled with so many wonderful truths, so much hope. And as a man, you think, the first time I thought about reading the book of Ruth, I was like, it's another love story. What do I want to do? You know, let's go to David where he's conquering Philistines, right? But trust me, you will be blessed by the book of Ruth if you open your heart and your mind to what God has to say. I'm going to attempt to do an overview of all four chapters to give you some things to think about and maybe to write in your notebook or your Bible, uh, side of your Bible. And when the pastor goes back in and does a more detailed study, you'll have been thinking through these things or maybe even searching the scripture to, to see what does God want to say to you about the book of Ruth. I used two commentaries in preparation for this talk. One was from David Guzik. Many of you who know, been around Calvary Chapel. He's a great teacher. He um, actually was the uh, president of, of the Calvary Chapel College in Germany for many years, and he's now back teaching. And I've had the pleasure, my wife and I have actually had the pleasure to hear him speak in person, and a wonderful teacher. His commentaries are available on the Blue Letter Bible, which is completely free. You can get it on the, on the Internet. The other one was Warren Wiersbe. Um, I've come to really like Warren Wiersbe because he um, explains things in a simple way that are easy to understand. He's, he's a little bit older than Pastor Greg Laurie, but a very similar style of teaching. One of the main things uh, throughout the book of Ruth that you're going to find is uh, God is faithful when we trust him. Even if it's strange or it's different or it goes against Tradition, you like that word, don't you, son? Tradition. <laughs> There's a whole other story on that one. And, uh, and if it's at odds with our society, God is faithful if we trust him. So let's start with chapter 1. In David Guzik's commentary, he, he lists two things that are happening in chapter 1. First, in the first part of it, the people, the characters in the story... To include Elimebek and his wife Naomi, his two sons. They're going into Moab. Now, if you don't have short-term memory loss like I do, you remember that the first scripture verse we read this morning said something about Moabites, right? Okay. Wasn't too good for the Moabites, was it? God wasn't going to let them in the assembly. Why do you think they had done that? Well, if you think back to Judges and think back to Exodus... The Moabites were not friendly to the Israelites when they were coming through the land trying to find the promised land. And they wouldn't give them bread. They wouldn't let them pass. And they essentially, through most of the judges, just tormented them, kept raiding and, and causing problems and everything else. So God didn't like it when people, other people messed with his people. Um, so what's happening here in the beginning of this is all those folks are moving away from God and actually going to live with who God considers to be the enemy. About halfway through that, they go towards, after some tragedy, moving back towards God. So we can think of moving away from God in our own personal lives with following our heart. Don't you hear that so much on TV? Just follow your heart. Follow your heart and you'll be happy. You'll live this beautiful life. Just follow your heart. It's a lie. Who knows the heart, how wicked it is, to paraphrase uh, a Bible verse. But moving towards God 
is moving with and towards the Holy Spirit. You're letting the Holy Spirit guide your life by moving back towards God. And you'll, if we look, we'll see that some things happened that gave Naomi, particularly, some choices because she had moved away from God and she could make a choice. Was she going to continue to move away from God or was she going to turn and move back towards God? I want people to understand that Pastor Greg Laurie always says you're either moving toward God or away from him. There's no such thing as being neutral in a spiritual life. The idea of sanctification, which is God constantly improving us, constantly forming us more into the image of his own son, implies change. It doesn't imply standing still. Now, this is a hard thing to keep, and we're human, and we get tired, and sometimes we get bogged down, and I admitted earlier that I'd gotten out of a good habit into a bad habit. But I don't want you to confuse the idea of always having to move with the idea of waiting on the Lord. There is a complete difference there. And if you go back into the translation, that waiting implies not just complete standing still, but continuing to rely on God, to worship Him, to be in communion with Him while He prepares your way that He wants you to go. Okay? So so make sure you keep those distinctions because the idea of waiting on the Lord will come a little bit later in Ruth, the book of Ruth, after they've made lots of decisions, all of a sudden they have to stop and wait. Uh, Warren Wiersbe uh, has a commentary on the books of Ruth and Esther together, and it's called Be Committed. Wow, what a good title. Let's be committed in our Christian walk, right? And his title for chapter one is You Can't Run Away. If you are a child of God, he will pursue you to the day you pass from this earth, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, because you've asked for his forgiveness and he's given that to you. You are now his. He has redeemed you. You are his property. And we'll talk about redeeming and the, re- the idea of a kinsman redeemer a little bit later in the talk. Um, but you can't run away from God. I've tried it. Not very successful. But I thank God that I wasn't successful, really. Um, So the whole idea behind chapter 1, the family sort of makes a decision to move into Moab based on their feelings. God had already told them not to go there. God said, those are our enemy. Don't go mingle with them. What was going on at that time? There was a famine in the land. Famine in the land was because the people of Israel and the tribes had not followed God's command. So he was punishing them as a good father punishes someone to discipline them to bring them back. Well, Naomi's husband decided that rather than face the punishment, he was going to run away and they were going to go to Moab because there was lots of good food there. And now away they went. Well, you can't outrun God, right? I already said you can't run away. Um, Famine happened there too. And... Naomi lost her husband, and her two daughters lost their husbands. So we can see that they exchanged something that was temporary, and we all go through trials as a Christian, and those are temporary. Those are made to sanctify us for something that was very permanent, the three deaths of the men that could take care of them. And remember that being a widow in those days, they didn't have Social Security, They didn't have food banks. 
They didn't have the government to come and take care of you. You were on your own and often died early as soon as you were a widow because you couldn't scrape up enough from begging. Um, so the book of Ruth shows us, number one, that the exercise of free will, which is what that family did, still allows God's will to prevail. Because when you start, they're all moving away from God. But when they change and come back to God, God's will prevails, and then there is a blessing. Um, free will versus predestination. Uh, we probably talk like for four hours on this subject. But I, I just want to give you some things if you want to look up something a little bit later. Uh, this is something that's disagreed upon in the church. Some say everything is predestined. You've got no choice. Uh, some say that our free will is more prevalent and God only intervenes uh, when he predestines certain things. So the question is, as a Christian, that you should be asking, well, can these things possibly coexist? It's one of the most difficult things to grasp as a Christian. How can I have free will, but God has already predestined me? Uh, there's been a couple of really great explanations for this. Uh, Pastor Chuck Smith had something called the parade analogy which is a wonderful way, simplistic way to do it. Um, one of the things that, that you can do to help understand from a scriptural reference how these things and how God has talked specifically about both of them and how they can coexist because they coexist in his word, there is a uh, website called godandscience, all one word, dot org. And if you go to that website, type in predestination in the search box, and then select, there's multiple articles in there, but select predestination versus free will. Is it one or the other? So let's just two verses that show that God uh, ordains predestination, but he also ordains free will. In Isaiah 46, 10 through 11, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. That's the voice of the Lord speaking. So obviously he plans things, and he is going to make sure they happen. Free will in the Old Testament. Joshua 24:15 And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord Joshua had full free will to choose and he gave the whole camp of Israel the same free will We'll see that the choices of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz were all free will choices. Some were right, some were wrong. But we'll also see that God's destiny for them was fulfilled in a wonderful way as we get near the end of the book. Uh, there's three ch other themes for chapter 1, and they all deal with choices. Selfishness versus selflessness. Compromise versus commitment and bitterness versus repentance. So selfishness. An excerpt from Warren Worsby's uh, commentary. There's a Scottish preacher that lived in the 1800s until the early 1900s. His name was George H. Morrison. 
Nine-tenths of our unhappiness is selfishness. And it is an insult cast in the face of God. So when we're unhappy, let's examine that and see, is it really because we're being selfish instead of selflessness? And it was told um, by many people I've heard teach that if you want to get out of your depression or your doldrums, go serve somebody. Take your mind off yourself. Okay? Be selfless instead of selfish. Compromise versus commitment. In compromise, we try to work things through our own efforts by rationalizing our behaviors against what we observe in others. Uh, what an easy sin to fall into. But it's a slippery, slippery slope, and it leads us away from God. And we're grasping at the wisdom of men rather than the wisdom of God. Commitment. If done right, now we, sometimes we can be committed to the wrong things, but committed, if done right, is based on the firm foundation of God's word that gives us comfort and even joy in the midst of life's stormy seas. True commitment always draws us closer to God, deepens our realization that we cannot possibly do anything without him. Bitterness versus repentance. This is a difficult passage because it deals with the term Mara and how Naomi starts saying, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because I'm bitter. The questions you want to be asking yourself is, was Naomi bitter against the Lord? You need to study her actions throughout the entire book. Was the Lord bitter against Naomi? In verse 20, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I believe, and some of the other commentators believe, Naomi was actually describing how the discipline to her and her family for disobeying God was bitter. Nobody likes to be disciplined, and it can be a bitter experience. But here's the thing we want to remember. Did she cling to this bitterness that she fully experienced, or did she repent? And maybe it wasn't an immediate repentance. Maybe it was a series of events but did she repent? In Proverbs 15.33, it says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor, at, at that point in the book, Naomi obviously wasn't being honored in any way whatsoever. She was a beggar. Before honor is humility. How do we deal with discipline that the Lord gives us? Have we come to a point in our walk with Christ that we fail to even ask God when bad, uncomfortable, discouraged, depressing, or even bitter, notice how they have gotten stronger, things in our lives, are they part of his plan to discipline us, to turn us back? But it, again, it's a free will choice. God doesn't give you one chance to say, that's it, you messed up, sorry, see you. He will constantly, constantly woo you back if you're going down the wrong path. Do we hear him? Now, sometimes we go for the wisdom of men or the wisdom of women. Um, but when you start experiencing, sometimes things are bad simply because we're in a fallen world. So it's not always discipline. So be aware of that. But if you are experiencing troubling times or difficult times, don't be afraid to go to God and say, Lord, am I doing something wrong? You want me to change? He'll answer you. He'll let you know. In Guzik's uh, commentary, he references John Trapp. John Trapp, this is somebody he references quite a lot in his commentaries. He was an English Anglican Bible commentator from the 1600s. And he 
he was what we would say he was often very pithy in his commentaries, very deep thoughts, but somewhat, not sarcastic, but can't think of the word right now. I can just keep moving on. But he said, many are humbled, but not humble, low, but not lowly. These have lost the fruit of their afflictions and are therefore most miserable. Think of that. Lost the fruit of your affliction? How could something that's afflicting you produce fruit? Well, remember, Jesus talks about trimming the vines, right? He has to trim the vine in order for it to produce more grapes. Your afflictions can produce fruit in your life. So take heart if you're going through some difficult times. Moving on to chapter 2. In here, we're going to be introduced to Boaz. This is where sort of the romance starts. It's really, really sort of neat. Um, You have to understand the culture so that you don't get a little freaked out, knowing that Boaz is sort of kind of related to all these people. But at the same time, if you understand the culture and you understand the love between the laws that God laid down for that culture, it was a way to make sure people didn't fall off into the wayside or die an early death because they were a widow. Um, Boaz is more than just a relative. One of the things you'll find, he was a man of very great wealth. So you might ask yourself, how did this guy get so rich? Well, let's take Abimelech and his family, and they left in the middle of the famine. But the implication is, is Boaz stayed there. He was the chieftain of the clan. He stayed. He suffered through the famine that was happening in Bethlehem. And because he suffered through that, and because he also, as we see, he was very much about the things of the Lord. He wanted to follow the Lord's instructions on what he should be doing, not only as a man, but as sort of the protector of everybody, the chieftain. He followed those rules. He understood the biblical principles in the Old Testament. So I think he was blessed by God for staying there, even though he went through some difficult times. How many times in your life have you gone through something difficult, but then within a period, you all of a sudden you realize, wow, that actually brought a blessing. So hang, hang on. Um, David Guzik says the exact expression when translated is a mighty man of wealth also can be translated a mighty man of valor. Hopefully you were listening while we studied judges, and that term comes up a couple of times. <laughs> it's not just a rich man, but someone who does good things with their wealth, someone seeking to be a blessing to others and using that position. To, of power to help those less fortunate. In all actuality, it, it was translated in Hebrew, Goel, which meant chieftain of the entire extended family. If you want to try to make a comparison, it was like a small government in a lot of ways. They pooled their resources, he decided who got what, and he made sure everyone got taken care of if they did their part. So next in chapter 2, we're going to actually see action. Remember, Ruth just... She said, I'm going with you, Naomi. I love you. I love your God. So there had to have been some sort of testimony that that Naomi was able to give to Ruth that made her want to do that. Well, she decided at some point, I'm going to take action. She had been waiting and waiting, but she didn't wait for a handout. She was willing to work for what God was willing to give her for the place she was at in her life. Um, unfortunately, in today's society, we, we in the United States, we have a lot of people who think they don't have to work and they deserve a handout from the government. 
because all these other people are got all this money and they didn't really work for it and they want some of it. You'll notice that in the society back then in the Old Testament, God took care of the poor, but the poor had to work to get it. So we come to this idea of gleaning from the fields. And I want you to notice that throughout the rest of the book, as you're studying this in the future, Ruth and Naomi are ecstatic just to get enough to get by. And they never once ask for more. They never say, well, Boaz, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, they got more grain than could, that they could ever use in the next 20 years. And we've got very little. We've only got enough to get through today, so you should give us some right now. They never say that. Don't find yourself in that situation with God. Here's a great prayer in the Bible. I, I stumbled upon this through a, another study probably four or five years ago from Proverbs 30, verses 7 and 9. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You go and contemplate on that one for a little bit, and you're basically telling, telling the Lord, Just give me enough to get by. Um, take some some bravery to pray that prayer. But trust me, he will give you what he knows you can handle. Uh, in verses 8 through 13, we start to see the kindness of Boaz, but also importantly, the humility of Ruth. So keep that in mind. There's, there's a kindness that's being extended that doesn't have to be extended, but there's also a humility for the receiver. Very important. We've, I think we've lost some, some humbleness, even in our, as a country. Um, in, 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 again, we're married into Christ's family. Uh, Ruth was sort of married in the Boaz family because her husband who had died was a relative of Boaz, but she never once demanded that she get something. She waited for Boaz to take care of her. In verse 10, she fell on her face and bowed to the ground, said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Point of reference, historically, Exodus 22, verses 21 through 24, gives instructions on how to deal with strangers and foreigners. Um, and, and there are very, very harsh consequences if you disobey God's word on how to deal with strangers and foreigners. Um, verses 15 and 16 uh, does a cross-reference to Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, and this is the part of the law for providing for the poor. It talks about gleaning the fields, about allowing the poor to come in behind you and take up something that you left for them, but they have to work for it. But there's something here that I want you to focus on when we get to chapter 2, realizing that Boaz doesn't just meet the minimum of the law, he exceeds it. There's three points to keep in mind. Meeting the minimum is the same as minimal obedience. Exceeding the minimum in hopes of getting greater returns is the same as trying to bribe God. Don't go down that road. But exceeding the minimum because of our love of God is a blessing towards God. And if we really love him for everything he's done for us, isn't it a joy to bless God by doing things for him out of love beyond the minimum? Where's minimal obedience creep into our lives? 
Have you taken time to determine the inf what influences your minimal obedience? Could be the clock. Could be certain TV programs. Maybe that desire to hit the snooze one too many times. Here's one that um, a lot of people say you should, that, that uh, lay people should never talk about when they're given the chance to be on the pul pulpit. What about tithes and offerings? I once had a conversation with a Christian brother who took offense that I suggested to him that now that he had met that minimal 10% of his gross income, which he was still on the net thing, trying to argue between that, that it's even greater to start putting, find some way to put something aside, even if it's just $5 a week, and put that in this little thing called opportunity giving because it's no longer a tithe. It's above the tithe. It is now an offering. It's something you're doing specifically to go beyond the minimum. Unfortunately, this person couldn't get past the idea that you know, well, it's an Old Testament rule and blah, 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 and I should be led by my heart as to what I should and shouldn't give. And, and, and my budget's so small that I would only ever, probably in a year, be able to save $35. Wow. $35 is a lot. Particularly if it's given with a good heart. He missed the story of the widow's might somewhere in all those years of being a Christian. <laughs> I will tell you that our family does a little thing called opportunity giving. Um, and if you want to uh, learn about how much you really love God, and, and growing is always difficult, but you set up this savings account, and God will lovingly test you because about the time it starts to get a pretty significant amount of money, nothing huge, you'll have a washing machine, an oven, and a car go bad all within three months. And the first thing you're tempted to do is go in there and say, look, I got this money. I can, I can take this out of here. Don't rob God. The second thing that happens once you get past those trials is it continues to grow. And you still give some as you see fit, and, but it always seems to grow. God's blessing you for your obedience. And all of a sudden, this thought will start to creep in, and you'll start to get a little more. Well, do I really need to give something to, to this at this point? Does this opportunity what God really wants me to do? And what's creeping into you is your flesh saying, well, if I save this thing to be like five grand, and then suddenly someone comes up and needs a big money, and I can write the check, look what I've done for the kingdom. Don't let that happen to you either. So, just some things to think about. Chapter 3. Chapter 3 gets into even a little more romance. Um, you know, some comment commentators say that Boaz actually began to be attracted to Ruth in chapter 2 because she was so humble. Uh, really not that important at this point. Feel free to read the commentaries and, and make your own decision as to how that applies to your life. Um, but I think it depends on how we view what is happening in chapter 3. And there's five things that Ruth did in preparation to receive a blessing of deeper love from Boaz. Number one, Ruth prepared to meet Boaz. So make a note of the four things she did specifically in preparation to meet Boaz and think about how you prepare to meet God. I will tell you that probably 12 years ago, maybe more, 15, um, I... I had really just gotten back into having a relationship with Christ. And it was like my wife and 
my kids will tell you I was listening to Bible studies every day and I was talking to them all the time and, you know, uh, trying to change them when I should have let the Holy Spirit try to change them. But I was introduced as one of the many Bible teachers that often uh, also teaches at Calvary Chapel gatherings. His name is Alistair Begg, and he's from Scotland. I love a God Scottish rogue. I mean, I can't do it very well, but you hear somebody talk like that, and you just know that there's a passionate person. And Alistair is passionate. He's passionate about the Bible. He's passionate about golf. I love that too. And he's passionate, believe it or not, about the Beatles. He grew up when the Beatles were big. And he will often take little snippets of Beatles songs and show how sad they really were because they're grasping at things that are outside of God's kingdom. But with all that aside, he's preaching, and all of a sudden I heard him say, Brothers and sisters, what distractions are allowing your life to prevent you? from being prepared to enter into the worship of the living God is great. Now, my imitation probably wasn't that good, but when he said that, I stopped dead in my tracks, and I thought, man, that guy's talking right to me. Because Sunday mornings consisted of me getting up way too late to prepare in a way that was calm. And I often would have on Fox News, or I often would have on the commentary about the football games that was getting ready to happen or the baseball games or whatever. And all this stuff is going on in the background and I'm trying to get three teenagers out the door and I'm still in the military. And Sam will tell you, if you're not 10 minutes early, you're 20 minutes late. <laughs> it created a little stress sometimes. But when he said that to me, I realized I had all these things in, that were happening on Sunday morning that were preventing me from preparing to meet God. And then it can apply to the rest of my life, too. But I changed what I do on Sunday morning. Uh, now, our house, if you come to our house on Sunday morning sometime for coffee or breakfast, uh, just let us know in advance you're coming. We'll be glad to have you. But you will either hear Christian music or quiet. One of those two. Um, so prepare yourself before you come to worship. Think about, is there something that's getting in your way of doing that? Number two, Ruth submitted to Boaz. Ah, yes, the idea of submission. So if you read over this too quickly as a woman, and don't worry, I'll get to the guys too, you risk thinking it's just another thing in the Bible that makes us have to submit to the man. Men, if you read over this too quickly, you risk thinking, see, if my wife would just submit to my wishes, it would be so much easier for me to bless her and take care of her. Now, people probably don't really say that out loud, but we all know what goes on inside our head. So, ladies, I submit to you that if you have a spirit of submission simply because the Bible tells you to have one, you're missing the point. God doesn't want you to submit to your husband or to him so they can lord it over you, so they can tell you what to do, so they can control your every move. They want you to submit because God's plan, and they want you to submit to God's plan. It consistently proves that a loving and trusting submission to biblical principles will provide blessing in your life. Men, if you're frustrated because your wife's not submitting in a biblical way, examine yourself. First of all, your interpretation of a biblical way may be skewed, so you better ask God, do I got this right, Lord? And then you have to ask yourself, am I fully submitted to the rule of Christ in my life as a man? 
I wish I could stand up here and tell you 100% of my life is totally submitted to the Lord. It's not. I'm a sinner. Things creep in. I get that under control. Something else happens. I'm currently stubborn over a couple of things. God's dealing with me on that too, trust me. But if you compartmentalize where Jesus has control over you and you're not submitted to Christ fully, maybe he's allowing your wife not to submit fully to you to teach you a lesson, right? Nothing says that God can't influence other people in our lives to make you learn something. So ask yourself that, but what can we do? Altogether, think of it this way. The greatest gift anyone has ever been given can only be received when you humbly admit your need for a Savior from God's justified wrath and submit by faith to God's offering of salvation. Admit and submit every day. Admit and submit. I want to give you an example of somebody I know. And when this happened, I was like, wow, this person gets it. I know somebody who had a job, and it was a great job, and they liked it, but there were some difficulties, but they were doing well, and then just out of the blue, they were told, we don't need you no more. I mean, no warning whatsoever. And what made it worse was that they were treated with the way that they were let go was done in a way that wasn't private and respectful. It was done in a way that caused chaos and heartache and hurt, and and it was very difficult to recover for that person for the moment. Um, now, I, I want to say that this person obviously was looking for the Lord's will in all this. That was the first thing that they did. They, they told me and, and other people that were praying for them, I know God's got a plan, and that's a great attitude to have. But that attitude gets tougher when the bills are coming due you, you, you weren't prepared to lose a significant amount of income for more than a certain period of time. And they experienced frustration. They experienced fear. And there were some tears. But there was never bitterness because they kept looking to the Lord. Never bitterness for this person. But trying to find that job was slow. They kept waiting and praying and asking. And they'd see a job and they'd pray for that job. Because how many times are we told to pray for specifics? We're always told, make God know what you want. God knows what you want. Now, it's good to pray for specifics, but don't pretend like you're telling him something he doesn't already know. Number thing that also happened was that person began to pray for specific jobs, and they just weren't getting anywhere. Suddenly, they let the prayer circle know, you know what? I'm going to turn it all over to the Lord. I'm saying, God, you give me a job where you want me to be, where I can serve you. Man, I hope if that ever happens to me, I can pray that prayer with that much faith. And you know what happened? Two days later, that person got a job. Two days. And on top of that, they got blessings that they weren't even expecting. Extra things in terms of extra time because of the commute was so much shorter. Extra um, uh, freedom in how they conducted their job. It's just an amazing thing to see how God works when we really humble ourselves before him. Number three, Ruth listened to Boaz. But she not only listened, she believed, trusted, and obeyed. 
There's action on Ruth's part. Wearsby, our assurance is not in our feelings or our circumstances, but in his word. Robert G. Allen, some of you have probably heard this many times. What kind of believer are you? Do you believe in God or do you believe God? There is a major distinction. People who believe in God simply acknowledge the existence of a higher power. Sort of like those folks that come in and wait for their spiritual IV, right? People who believe him, believe him enough to do what he says, to seek a deeper relationship with him, to constantly be looking in ways they can share his love with the rest of the world. James 2.19 says, believe that there is one God. You do well, even the demons believe, and they tremble. Point number four, Ruth receives gifts from Boaz. This section, when you start reading it, you're going to see this is a picture of what we should do when we receive the gift of salvation as we receive our daily blessings from God's grace. Ruth did two things. She accepted the gifts with humility and thankfulness. Are you content where you are in life? Or are you always asking for more? If I just got this, I'd be happier, Lord. If you just gave me this ministry, Lord, I know I could do a great job. If you would just uh, give me a raise, Lord, we could finally get out of debt and we'd never go back in debt again. That's discontent. If you're content, you're asking, God, take me where I'm at right now and show me what you want me to be. You show me where you want me to be. And that's what Ruth did. She took it with humility and thankfulness. She went back to Naomi and shared the gifts with Naomi. She could have just kept all the grain for herself, but she shared them with her mother-in-law. And are you asking God daily for opportunities to share your faith? Or are you hoarding your faith? Something to keep in mind. Number five, Ruth and Naomi waited for Boaz to work. Remember we talked a little bit earlier about waiting for the Lord, waiting on the Lord. Wearsby says in referencing Hebrews 6.12, it is through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. So they didn't try to help Boaz. They didn't try to decide to do a little extra to speed up the marriage. They waited patiently for Boaz to do his job. Psalm 37, 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. My oldest grandson loves to say, I got this. And it's really cute when he says it. First time I think we all about fell out of our chairs. And, and I... I'm really not sure if it's self-confidence, which is a good thing for a seven-year-old, or the fact that he just doesn't want to wait till Grammy and Papa or Mommy and Daddy decide they're going to do something for him. I think we can do the same thing when we're trying to wait on the Lord. If we don't wait, we can often miss the full blessing. If we rely on our own confidence instead of asking for help and guidance, we often even totally miss the blessing because we've moved from where God wants us to be. Many of you have heard the famous story of the pump house in Lake Forest. Some of you have not. I see, Chris, you have not. I'll try to keep it short. I know I'm going a little longer than what we normally do. But I wasn't willing to wait on the Lord. Val and I looked for a home for five years, six years, trying to figure out where we are going to build, what we were going to do. Remember this, Jason. <laughs> and uh, I finally just said, this has got to be it. Found the house we wanted, founded the style we wanted, founded the neighborhood we wanted. The only one thing was, is it had to be a certain size lot. Never once did I go and ask God, Lord, this seems selfish that I'm saying it has to be this size lot. Can you help me? Can you sort of 
tell me, is this really important? Nope. We're going to get this lot. Well, on this lot happened to be a pump house. If you don't know what a pump house is, it's used to take water from neighborhoods and push it out into a holding pond. The pump house, according to the realtor, was scheduled to be torn down. So we went and we looked. And, yeah, it sort of smells sort of bad, but it's going to be torn down. Then we went and we looked, and wow, it's leaking, but it's going to be torn down. I kept rationalizing, using the wisdom of man. We called, and the guy even told me, yes, it's scheduled to be torn down. That's not a lie. But I can't tell you when because it's low priority on the budget. And just to add to that, later on we realized it also had this big, huge sodium light that would turn on at night that would have been shining right into our bedroom. But I never got that far. And uh, we put down the down payment. And my wife submitted to me because I know she thought I was an idiot for doing that. But she got a blessing. Her blessing was God took that property away from us. I got a call and she said, the, late, the realtor said, you can't have it. And here's why. I won't go into all the details. So I'm mad. Oh, Lord, we've been waiting for six years and I had it all planned out and you didn't. So a beautiful, loving wife says, well, let's go look at this lot. And there's more to this story that, that just to me proved that God was trying to show me and bless us both. But in the long run, we have our house where it's at. There's no pump house. There's no bad smell, except for the one time when the pond drained really and all the fish died. But that's only once every 100 years, I think. And um, we have a view out our back that goes for literally over a mile and a half, and no one will ever build behind us. So even in the midst of my disobedience, because my wife was submitting to the Lord, he blessed us both. Don't ever forget that. And when you get ready to buy your property, make sure you're praying. <laughs> All right, let's get to chapter 4, and we'll close this up. Chapter 4 is, is where, you know, it's sort of like the climax, right? When, when you get into this, you're going to see that Boaz is getting ready to act, and, but there's a, a, a person who actually can claim Ruth because he is a nearer kinsman. Now, I'm not going to spend all the time going into all the details about how that and how they have to do it and what they have to do. You're going to read it. You're also going to be led by our pastor, and you're going to get some things out of there. But one of the things I think an overall idea you, you'd see in today's world, if they were making a made-for-TV movie, Boaz wouldn't have waited for the nearer kinsman to make his decision. Boaz wouldn't have trusted for God to do what God wanted to do so his will would be done. Boaz would have done something like, I think I'll just beat the guy up. You know, it's a big, great fist fight, a lot of drama. I love Ruth. You can't have her. Or he would have found something to blackmail the guy with and say, well, you haven't paid your debts on all this, so you can't possibly pay your debt on that. Made for TV, people. God's plan's a lot better. And you'll see that when you study this. Um, I just want you to remember that if you have experiences in your past and you're trusting God and you're trusting God, it just doesn't seem like it's working out. Have faith. Ask for prayer. Keep faithful. God's will is always what's best for us. So I want to close on this study of the overview of the book of Ruth. I pray that I've given you a little, led you to a little bit of spiritual food. And you're going to go home now and you're going to take your time and you're going to eat it. And you're going to ask God and the Holy Spirit to guide you into more things that apply directly to your life. Um, 
But a reminder, you know, just as a shepherd doesn't force feed his sheep, I can't force feed you. And neither can Pastor Don. Um, it's up to you to get alone with God and feed on his word. And Wearsby's closing commentary on chapter 4, it points us to that verse that was read in the beginning, Deuteronomy 23.3. Remember it sounded so hopeless, like a Moabite? Ruth was a Moabite, right? So she, she had no business being around the assembly of God. It says, paraphrase, the Moabites were not to enter the congregation of the Lord even to the 10th generation. When you look at the very last verses of the book of Ruth, you will find there's a genealogy there. I'm not going to tell you how that genealogy ends because I want you to look it up. But it's pretty awesome. And all I ask for all you people to do is never underestimate the power of the grace of God. Amen? Can I get you to stand? If anybody needs prayer, just seek out one of our ushers or myself or Sean or Jason or Jaime or anybody you feel comfortable praying with. We're, we always want to be here to help you in prayer. Um, please receive the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.